Did you get to a blues fest? Or was yes, there a couple of I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were walking through it, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> well, that's the best part. It always yeah. falls in the AMA weekend. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm oh, originally really? from Chicago, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, right. What I couldn't figure out was that the, I didn't realize you can't drink at the blues fest. I thought, what type of blues fest can't no, you, you drink No, you totally at? could. They were selling beer. Were they really? Oh, yeah, there was a, there was a big they tent. They might have had, like, their one restricted tent. Oh, maybe yeah, that was that, it. Yeah. I'm glad that you found I'm glad you found a way around. <laughs> Warning. This episode contains graphic and explicit descriptions of war. Content may be disturbing for some viewers. This is Rotations, and I'm assistant professor of family medicine, Todd Fredericks Dio, at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And with that, uh, here's Nisarg Bakshi. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is another episode of Rotations. My name is Nisarg Bakshi. I'm a second-year medical student at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And today we're joined by Dr. John Kaler, a pediatrician from Chicago, who was also named the 2016 Chicagoan of the Year, uh, which is an incredible honor, and, and we're honored to have you on as well. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Kaler. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. And the, and the most important question is, does that mean you get the first glass of green beer? It does. <laughs> there were there were five of us, and we get we get a we get the lineup for it. Okay, so nice. can you, can you do that again next year, and then invite me up to be your friend? Because I, if I could repeat, I'd be glad. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by our resident people off the street. We have two today: um, Sam Long, who's been on the show before, um, so we're happy to have her back. Thank you. And then we have Aaron Stover, uh, one another classmate of mine, joining us. Uh, good to have you, Aaron. It's good to be here. So, Dr. Kaler, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work overseas? Sure. For, for the past 20, 25 years, I've been uh, very lucky to have the opportunities to uh, travel all over the world doing short-term medical mission work, anywhere between two and four weeks, Africa, Latin America, spent a lot of time in Mexico, and a lot of time in Haiti. And actually, uh, I was there, I had spent time before the earthquake, but at the time of the earthquake, I was there, um, and actually, I thought that was going to be the, the, the turning point in, in my dedication, because it was a, you know, truly a, a moving experience. Went down there several times afterwards, uh, and little but little did I know that uh, in March of the next year, the Syrian revolution would begin, and from there, uh, Haiti and Syria have been my two, uh, Haiti and the Mideast have been my two concentrations. Yeah, and, and we want to talk about your work in Syria. But before we get into that, uh, what made you want to get involved in this sort of medical mission work in the first place? I enjoy, I've spent my career uh, serving in the public sector. I trained at Cook County Hospital. I spent 34 years there. Um, and, and so in addition to that, I had a practice uh, in the community. So service to the underserved has always been a, a dedication of mine. I grew up in a you know, steel town, middle class, you know, the fairly not untypical story. Um, so I enjoyed that work, but not too laudable work was, the not too laudable part was, is that uh, as things went along, I, I did realize I was getting a lot of ego gratification out of this. You would come back from these trips and 
you know, um, your medical colleagues would have a lot of negative things to, to a lot of snarky things, you know, what are you doing? You don't have MRIs, you know, you don't, don't have a full issue, you don't have a full that. So, so the medical colleagues that were staying in Chicago would have a lot of snarky things to say, but the, the layman, the layman would to a person, um, be thankful and stuff like that. So I was enjoying my life, uh, uh, travel. I got to travel. I got to, got to serve and got to feel good about it. Um, and then a lot of that changed after Haiti and a lot of that changed after the Mideast began. Yeah, and, and I actually had the opportunity to hear you speak about your work in Syria um, at the AMA conference in Chicago. Uh, I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background on that, um, how you got involved sure. and, and how you got started in Syria. Yeah. Um, well, as I said, I've stayed fairly active in, 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 in the underserved community. And... Um, what touched me, though, in uh, March, no, I'm sorry, in, in June of 2013, the Syrian regime gassed a uh, population in a suburb of um, Damascus. It would be like in Chicago gassing Evanston. Um, and that's how close things were. And uh, anywhere between, it's, it's unclear, but anywhere between 750 and probably 1,750 people were killed of which a not insignificant number, and possibly even a majority of these, were children. And, and um, I had read about it, and of course it touched me reading about it, and then I put the paper down and continued along doing whatever I was doing, but about a year and a half later, 60 Minutes replayed a segment they did. This is Guta. Uh, replayed a segment they did. And in that segment, um, I watched it, and, and it captivated me. Something touched me that, that had not been there before. Um, the last scene of that segment was set in a uh, warehouse. And in that warehouse, there were probably 500 bodies laid out, one by one by one by one by one. And the end of that was a um, uh, father with five little uh, covered bodies. Uh, and he was wailing to his God. Uh, as to how could this happen. And something happened that moment in time that, that I'm not a particularly this man, but, but for me that, that um, I couldn't let go. And to this moment, to this day, I probably still wake up once or twice a week with nightmares about, about that scene. Right after that, my wife, I need that, this is where I need to go. Um, and I contacted, I was at that time a chief medical officer at a community health center and had a Syrian doctor that worked with me. I called him, uh, we talked for about an hour, he gave me the, a friend of a friend of a friend, and I finally ended up uh, contacting the Syrian American Medical Society. And the first place I went then was to the um, large uh, refugee camp, Al Zatori. But at that moment in time, I realized this is where I dedicate the rest of my life to. So when you're talking about these hospitals, uh, and, and you mentioned earlier, uh, you kind of got a little bit of snark from um, other physicians in, in Chicago right. about it. W what sorts of resources did you have while you were there? Well, it, there's a, so there's, let me, let me break it out. I'm a pediatrician. I'm a primary care pediatrician. So, so um, the, for the work we do, non-trauma work, the resources are the same you need anywhere, which is, is antibiotics and skin care <laughs> um, and reassurance, antibiotics, reassurance and skin care. Not necessarily in that order, of course. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, 
what what we had very limited resources were when I was when I was in Aleppo there were so Aleppo had, had probably at that point in time four to five hundred thousand people still in it. We had four incubators in the besieged area that worked, four in the area. Um, so as you might imagine, uh, premature kids and stuff like that had real triage, and the, the death rate was high from that. So from the pediatric world, that was that. From the trauma world, though, we had a pretty well-stocked uh, trauma hospital um, at the beginning of the, of the crisis, even at the beginning of the siege. We, we, any we I say now is Sam's, by the way, that's so, any, you'll hear me slip into we, uh, had a pretty well stocked, we were the, we're the number one uh, uh, support of a lot of these hospitals. We probably had five or six that were primary, so there was a hundred and, hundred medical facilities in, in Syria that we supported. And they were pretty well stocked. Towards the end, when we were there towards the end, uh, we had anticipated that we had probably three to six months worth of stocks uh, cashed, and those ran out really quickly. So when I was there, there was not so much the, tr the need for triage with regards to supplies, but the need for triage with regards to personnel. So there was a, um, there was a uh, market bombed. When the market was bombed, 60 uh, people were brought immediately into, um, into this quote-unquote emergency room which was the size of a, you know, a, half, a quarter the size of a gym. Um, Sixty people were in there, but and there were only two surgeons. So they had the supplies to operate. They didn't have the personnel to operate. So triage decisions that had to get made had to get made not because we didn't have the supplies at that time, but because uh, we had to make decisions vis-a-vis -vis who was going to get operated on, who wasn't. So the supplies ran out fairly quickly, and at the end of the siege. Um, um, you know, st the the one OB left in town was doing C-sections by uh, what do you call it? The flashlight. Um, things you read about hat that you know happened in in you know the end of World War II bombed out London, which is exactly what it looked like. Wow. Well, you know, a question that comes to my mind is while you're doing all this work, you know, you're you're out there, um, you know, putting your life on the line for for all this uh, for all these people, but. You're not a politician, right? You don't have an influence over what's going on in the war. So, did it ever feel hopeless? Did it ever feel kind of futile? Well, let alone did it feel hopeless and futile. It was a um, uh, turned out to be a total disaster, right? I mean, I went because um, I felt the need to bear witness to this evil, uh, to this humanitarian crisis. Not to read about it, but to to face it and touch it. While I was there, um, Dr. Mohammed Maz, who was um, the papers had him as the last pediatrician in Aleppo, was killed. And I showed you the um, I showed you the video of his of his uh, you know just before he was killed or when he was killed, his last moments on earth. And it was at at that moment that that I knew or felt that uh, I contacted. The, the, the head of Santa said, send me. You know, what better witness than, than, than uh, old, old white grandfatherly figure, you know, pediatrician, uh, to, to, to stand and say, no, this is, this is a humanitarian crisis. This isn't right. So part of what we went for was that. But the, it 
in order to bear witness, it was there in anticipation of, of uh, a personal connection to move our government, the UN, somebody. It was at that time that the crisis was ramping up and we were saying, well, you know, we need humanitarian zones. We need, if, the, if, no, if not no-fly zones, at least no bombing zones. And particularly, we need humanitarian protection to get people in. We went in order to say, well, here's a personal connection with this. So this is what I went for. Here's a personal connection with this. Not just to say it, but in order to anticipate change. Well, you asked about hopelessness. Well, that change never happened. Um, and all that happened then was the, the, the siege closed over, civilians. Over 800 medical personnel have been killed. And, that, and those are not secondary casualties. Those are targeted. You know, um, um, in addition to Dr. Maz, whose hospital was targeted, the pediatrician, um, there's Dr. El Azaj, who was the father, the godfather of the cave hospitals, right? Um, he, he and Hama, he was a cardiologist. And he, uh, his, his hospital, and a lot of private hospitals in, in these parts of the world, so his hospital was a cardiologist, well-stocked. Well, it was struck two or three times, and he said, well, you know what? This isn't going to stop. So he, he donated his hospital center, and they moved it into a cave. Uh, it took him a year to build it. They put a beautiful cardiology hospital, think about it, in a cave, right? He was targeted by a, a surface air missile and blowing the smithereens in the end of 2015, Dr. Maz in 2016, and then in 2017, in the next gassing, we had an orthopedic doctor, who was in surgery in a cave hospital that was attacked by chlorine gas. Now think about it, no, you know, I mean, no windows, no nothing, right? So he was in a cave hospital operating when the chlorine gas came. He, everyone abandoned the hospital except him and his patient who were in the OR. They both paid with their life. He died because of this. So, so hopeless, absolutely. There's no question about that. I mean, there's not, there's not a, not a uh, uplifting thing about it. Then what keeps you going if, you know, in the light of all this hopelessness? When I was there, there wasn't a person that I met that didn't show me on their cell phone the picture of the house they were going to go back to, where they were planning on going back. When I was in Greece, there wasn't a person who thought about going back. All they thought about was going forward. And that's why it was so frustrating when they when the border was closed. So I do it because this is a population, this is the worst, this, this is our Germany in 1940, right? So, so all of this stuff, you know, and so now we can't turn, no one doubts what's going on now. I know what's going on and I don't know how anybody can turn it back on. Sure. And, and you also, you said in another interview, uh, you said, I treated kids in a Syrian hospital, uh, yes. but we had no idea how to heal their trauma. Um, can you talk more about that? Like, do you think these kids sure. are ever really able to heal? Well, let me, let me, I'll, remember, this is all personal opinion. This is generational uh, destruction, right? There's no going back to this. So even if so if so, what's going to be the outcome of this? The outcome is going to be either partition, these safe zones, right? And what are the safe zones? The safe zones are going to be giant camps. There can't be anything else. People are not going home. 
so I think that kids won't have the base. We've now had six years worth of kids not getting real schooling, right? So field schools are nice, right? There's no question. Field schools are appropriate. But field schools are to education what field hospitals are to a medical system, right? They're there and it's nice, but they've got no base to them. There's no no movement forward in it. So we've got we've got kids who were six when it began who don't get that whole middle of socialization, right? We got families who are are completely disrupted. Particularly, I don't, I don't want to say particularly because I don't know that much about other cultures, but but certainly in the Middle East, this this family center and broader fam, family center writ large, right? So so families, their cousins, their uncles, their grandmas, was a significant part of their their world. This is destroyed. The the sons and daughters of the kids who are who are now in the camps, if they have something permanent, will be a lot better. But if they're camps, they're going to it's going to end up be the Palestinization of of Syria, right? I mean, look what happened to the camps in in forty eight and forty nine, the temporary camps uh, in Palestine, right? They're still there, so. And we know how well that's worked out. Yeah. And, and I think it is really powerful to, to kind of compare what's going on now to, like you said, Germany in the 40s. Um, because yeah. it is, you know, constantly we ask ourselves, oh, how do, the, how do we let that happen? Even though that, that very similar situation is going on as we speak. I was kind of curious, uh, the, uh, the children that you encountered, what their mindset was. Were they looking towards the future or what was it like an acceptance of that being their situation? There's a, there's a picture towards the end of, uh, I'll see if I can track it down, towards the end of uh, the Aleppo siege that really, really summed up what we were just talking about. As the picture of five or six boys, maybe 10 to 14, and they're standing arm, to, arm in arm with this big old smile on their face. And what they're smiling about is not success on the soccer field or having ripped off an, an apple or something from the you know, things that kids would normally be. What they're smiling about is that they set, they found enough tires to set on fire so that the black smoke occluded the ability of the jets to see their targets. So the question is, this is, you know, this is generational trauma to these kids. So will they be okay? They will. Those kids were not thinking of any future. If they have to direct answer your question, you got six-year-olds who are six-year-olds, right? Watch their pictures, though. Watch their drawings. That's where their trauma is. So six-year-olds don't think of the future anyway. Six-year-olds think of tomorrow. Uh, so those kids are still there. But what's going on now is this, the thing that kids need the most, safety and stability, is what's shaken. I, mean, I don't know if you saw the National Geographic thing last week called Descent into Hell. If you haven't, it's the single best view of the Syrian crisis I've ever seen. Um, but they they show the picture of a displaced family. And the father's smiling, playing with one of his kids, and he's smiling, smiling, smiling. But he says to the camera, I'm only, if I start crying, I apologize to you. He says to the camera, I can't stand this. I'm only, I'm ready to blow up. I'm smiling so my kids see me smile. Now, that's a good thing, except for one TIGS. Kids work on a psycho-emotional level. Anybody who thinks their kid doesn't feel, <laughs> doesn't feel, you know, when, 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 when they're saying, you know, anything to them, that they're not feeling what this father's feeling, has never dealt with, you know, doesn't, doesn't understand it. So the answer to your question is, 
No, the teenagers are not looking to a future anymore. They don't have a future to look to. Um, so before we began our discussion on your work, we were talking about your involvement in the AMA and about the different student sections. So clearly there's a divide between doctors and students at this juncture in our training. What recommendations would you have for students at our level who have not gone through residency, haven't gone through rotations yet, and what we can do for this situation? Um, it's, a, it's a very good point, and I'm asked constantly. So, so number one is finish your medical training. Number two is don't lose your interest. Medical training oftentimes has a way to do that. Um, so those are the two things for long-term support. For torture, short-term support, though, there are there are refugee work that you can do. I mean, I'm not sure what's in in Ohio, but there's a, you know, there there are many good um, refugee such refugee uh, resettlement programs, and and you certainly can work with the families and work with the kids. You can raise funds. You can raise awareness. Uh, as young medical as young medical students and as, as medical people, that's extremely important. So finish your education, go into it. I mean, if you want to be a trauma surgeon, go into that. If you want to be a primary care person, go into family practice. It's the single biggest, it's the single best <laughs> um, um, specialty for you uh, in that field. And then stay involved with people on the ground, the human part of that. Yeah, absolutely great points. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Kaler, is, uh, you know, you're talking about these images and these documentaries, and I, I've seen some of them too, and, and they kind of yeah. stay with you. As someone who's yeah. actually been there, you know, you, you've treated these patients. Have any of those patients stayed with you? I had a family, and we would put a lot of kids in hospitals, a lot of hepatitis. There was a lot of tuberculosis. Uh, these, these, these were sick kids. And in other situations, even there, if the system would have been set up, we could have sent them home and followed them home. But, you know, this is the middle of Aleppo being bombed. You can't send them home and expect them to just come on back and see me in the morning, right? <laughs> So, so I was sitting with the family. We'd put a kid in with hepatitis or something, and I was sitting with the family talking. And the father, I could see, was something on his mind. And I said, well, you want to step outside and talk? Because there was the mom, the dad. There was two kids. There were 16 uncles and aunts. I mean, there were a whole bunch of people around, right? So the father, the translator, and I stepped outside. And through the translator, and this, is, this was rough because I don't, you know, some of these connections you need to make closer. But anyway, through the translator, I asked what was wrong, and I could see the guy was beginning to lose it. And so I just put my arm up on his shoulder, and he put his head. This is, this is a guy probably late 20s, early 30s, put his head on my, my shoulder and just started crying. And I said, you know, well, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, geez, where do you want to start the list? But what he, he said was that he can't protect his family anymore. That, that he can't work, of course, because there's no jobs to have. And now he can't even get his kid, because we talked about how the hepatitis is spread. He can't even keep his kid with clean food and water. And now his kid's in the hospital, yellow going to die, he said. But, I mean, I mean, that would, but just out of control crying. Well, that family has, has stayed with me. Not the illness, um, but the lack. What affects us all is this lack of control. Um, it's this lack of ability to care for your family. 
this ends uh, the first part with Dr. John Kaler, uh, who's working with the Assyrian American Medical Society and uh, his work in Aleppo. Uh, and this has been uh, Rotations, and we'll, we'll catch it on the second half. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Rotations is a weekly podcast of all things medical and is part of the media medicine family of medical storytelling. Rotations is a product of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Scripps College of Communications. Rotations is hosted by Nisark Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by League of Champions of All Things Medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com and putting the word Rotations in the subject line.